As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Law. Welcome to the Keith Law Show, episode number, oh my God, I don't know what episode number it is, 126. These numbers got big and now I just can't remember automatically like I used to, or maybe it's because I recently turned 50. Anyway, I have a repeat guest today. It's Joe Sheehan of the Joe Sheehan Newsletter, formerly of Baseball Prospectus, with me way, way back in the day. And uh, we have a pretty wide-ranging conversation uh, that runs from the draft to player development to uh, what might happen at the trade deadline and more. For those of you who are subscribers to The Athletic, I had a new mock draft go up last week, very end of June. Uh, I am recording this on July 3rd right now. My remaining draft content, just to walk you through the upcoming schedule, we are planning a big board update, a ranking of the top 100 with full scouting capsules for all 100 players on there that is supposed to run on Thursday. And then my quote-unquote final mock draft will run on Friday. That is two days in advance of the draft. So if I hear anything significant that changes between then and the actual draft, which is Sunday night, I will make updates. That doesn't usually happen anymore. It used to happen a lot more. But under the new system, since the draft date changed, since the bonus pool system changed, uh, that happens a lot less. And when I hear stuff, it is often within an hour of the draft, and there's not really a whole lot of time to update stuff. We will be running a live draft blog during the draft itself that will include uh, my more or less pick-by-pick analyses, and there will be other folks at The Athletic, I think, chiming in as well. And then I will do a day one recap, which I usually do, and then we'll begin working on my team-by-team draft recaps, which will run at some point later next week after the All-Star Game once I'm actually back from Seattle. I will also be in Seattle at the Futures Game. I will write something about it that night. It's only seven innings. There's less to say, but I will find something. And certainly if you're going to be at the Futures game, let me know. I am usually there quite early and I'm always happy to meet up with readers there. We used to do larger meetups a long time ago and then COVID and the canceled game, etc. And anyway, I am more than happy to say hi to fans, especially before the Futures game starts or right afterwards, actually. So I am looking forward to that. Also, if you have good Seattle food or coffee recommendations, I hear they have coffee in Seattle. Please send those along. And finally, with the bird site possibly breaking down, I am just always keeping my options open, but I am on Spoutable at Keith Law, and I am on Blue Sky, also at Keith Law, and still on Facebook, it's Keith Law Writer. Feel free to follow me on any of those other sites as well. We'll see what happens. I make no promises, but I just try to plant a flag in each of those places and see how each of them develops. I'll say Spoutable seems to have a pretty good vibe right now, and there's a clear uh, intent on the folks who run that site to stop any sort of harassment, which was one of the big problems over at Twitter. Whereas at Blue Sky, there's just kind of more celebrities, more journalists there right now, so it seems to be a bit more active the feed is updating a lot more so you just pick kind of whatever 
you want. I'm on both sides. Now it's my pleasure to be joined by longtime friend, repeat Keith Law Show guest, and sudden uh, ex-Twitter personality, Joe Sheehan. You can uh, read his newsletter. He has an email newsletter. He's been running for a very long time, which is excellent. Um, you can check out excerpts and sign up for it at Joe Sheehan, J-O-E-S-H-E-E-H-A-N.com. Joe, thank you for joining me. Hey, Keith. What's going on, man? So um, you leave Twitter and the site breaks. Coincidence? Maybe, you know, yeah. maybe I was the linchpin holding it together. You know, me and Elon, we're, we're really tight. So. Uh, <laughs> Did you no, chew on I, some I was... wires on the way out? <laughs> well, no, I, I'm fortunate is that the newsletter does do well enough that I don't have to actually eat electrical, electrical wires to feed myself. Mm. But it's, you know, it can be dicey sometimes. But no, I, I got a kick out of that on Saturday. Um, I spent a lot of time on, there's a Slack that's attached to the newsletter. And people mm -hmm. were talking about Twitter being down. And I just, I, I got, I got a kick out of that, I guess. Things have changed, and I still have my Twitter account. I haven't gotten rid of it. It's a, it's a billboard if I want to put anything up there. But one of the things I had in the past is that I couldn't keep myself from saying things. You know, I just I got a big mouth, and right. somebody will say something, or somebody will say something wrong, and it's like, no, you know, usually about baseball yeah. economics, and I want to jump in. It's also <laughs> a vehicle for promoting other people's work. But what I've done is I've unfollowed everybody. Um, I saw that uh, Len Casper had done that, <clears throat> and I was like, well, that's brilliant because then there's nothing to react to. So I, you know, I still have the account. I'll probably still post things if I ever want to do a sale or whatever in the newsletter or, if, you know, I finally get hired by the Rockies to run their, uh, run their baseball ops department. But for now, it's just, it, you know, it feels good to not have to be part of that. Yeah, you have the solution to building a, a, an effective <clears throat> roster in Denver. Is that what you're saying? I would say that look at look where the bar is set. I can be drunk half the time and probably still do a better job. Yeah, it's it's. <clears throat> Things are not good there, and they um, and they have a very important. Uh, you know, I feel like every draft is especially important. It's important for every club. When you're the Rockies, though, you really need to hit on some of those, especially some of those high picks. Would you draft? This is one thing I always run into when thinking about not mocks because that's what what I think they will do, but what they should do. If you were the Rockies, would you change your draft approach and say? we're just going to draft pitching or we're going to overemphasize pitching or would you draft like you draft? Like, you know, I always say it's just best player available all the time. Just take the best player available. I was going to probably go the other way. I'd probably draft hitting. My, my thing for the Rockies has been, I, I want to try to build a thousand run offense, which in that park will be a 1200 run offense and then figure out the pitching as we go. Cause I don't think they've had success. If you look, there's no, there's never been a Rocky pitcher worth more than 20 war for them. I think Ubaldo leads at like 17 and, uh, I saw, I wrote a note earlier this year, Kyle Freeland is like the second best pitcher in Rockies history. Um, you got, you know, Herman Marquez, but none of these guys have had long careers for the most part. I think that beyond the effects on the baseball, on breaking pitches and things like that, or batted balls, the constant playing in a low oxygen environment, lower oxygen environment, um, makes it so that you're just not going to have long-term pitching. So I would build the an absolute godlike offense and, probably do something creative with the pitching. They were the one of the team. They went to the four-man rotation at one point. Um, if we're only going to use starters for 90 pitches a start, every team should be using a four-man rotation. But if I was the Rockies, I'd try to sell. Or like La Russa tried to do a 92 with the A's, 93 with the A's. Um, you do three guys, you know, three, three, three. I don't think you can run a traditional model pitching staff for the Rockies. I think you'd have to, again, score seven runs a game and then figure out the pitch. So I'm taking, and I'm you're – all I know about the draft is that the LSU pitcher is going to be drafted high. The guy who threw 190 pitches the other day. Um, but I don't, I I'm taking the best available hitter. I, I know you say, I know you always say take best available player, but for me, I, the risk factors with pitching are that such that I'm probably always going to consider the hitter to be the best available, best available player. Well, I lean that way too. I mean, I don't want to get too deep into the draft because it's not your thing, but, but um, I think, um, Jim and Jonathan over at MLB switch their rankings and they have Paul Skeens, the LSU pitcher, at one. And I'm not criticizing that at all. It's completely justifiable. But he's actually third on my rankings and he's been third basically all spring or most of the spring behind two position players, Dylan Cruz also at LSU and Wyatt Langford at Florida, because position players, right? Because they all break and that is not a knock against there's nothing specific in there against Skeens. I have no reason to say he's gonna break other than he's a pitcher. And he throws particularly hard. But even those guys don't all break. Like, there's no 
default assumption. People like to say, when is he scheduling his Tommy John surgery? I mean, first of all, it's, you know, that's just rude. But also, like, they don't all break. Um, but they break at a higher rate, right? If you're betting on the class as a whole, then you've got to consider the fact that a, a position player and a pitcher who you think are basically equal in future value, you have to discount the pitcher because he's going to get hurt in some fashion. Maybe not even a serious injury necessarily, but he's going to miss more time over whatever period, you know, 10 years than the position player is. And that's why I would always default to the position player if I, you know, this year where we've got guys you can argue any of those guys is first overall. I will just default to the position player. And also, I think the, the floor for a typical college hitter, or even a typical high school hitter, is going to be higher because a, a position player who stays healthy and plays every day, even if he's not that great, is probably going to help you. I think about Mike Moustakis a lot when I think about this, this idea. He was a top five pick, never really became a star, but was productive, especially in his pre-RB years you know, for, for the Royals, whereas a pitcher can go to zero and stay at zero for two years. And you're not getting anything. All you're doing is running up a service. If it happens in the majors, you know, you're just losing two years of cheap years. I mean, I know that's a very we, – we get mad at front offices now to think about these things that way. But I think you have to approach it this way. You know, if, if the years that I'm supposed to be paying this guy $700,000 for 180 good innings are years that I don't get anything out of him, and now this first, the first time he has a good year, I now got to pay him $4 million, I think you got to think about that stuff. And, well, I put it another way too, which is that the – same same line of thinking, but what if, okay, you get you know, three reasonably good years out of the pitcher while he is still zero to two. So he's not eligible for arbitration yet. So he is wildly underpaid. Those guys are the, the most underpaid players in all of Major League Baseball, at least. And then he hits arbitration and he gets, you know, three, four million, maybe more, depending on how good he is. And then he breaks. And then you've got, say, a year and a half where he's... On your 40-man, at least for the winters, you are now paying him more money and giving him service time. And I'm not, you know, this is nothing against the player. Good. He should get all of those things. But from a roster management perspective, that's a lot. And it is just, to me, it is just the question. Obviously, you've got to get pitchers. You have to sign pitchers, draft pitchers, whatever. So it's not like you're going to issue pitchers entirely. But if you're trying to decide between a position player and a pitcher who seem like they're roughly of equal value, that to me is all in favor of take the safety of the position player, even if you are giving up upside, even if you look at Paul Skeens and say, that's Garrett Cole, which I don't really think he is. Um, but maybe he could become a Garrett Cole in a couple of years. I don't think he's where Garrett Cole was when he was coming out of UCLA. But if that's what you're thinking, and you think Dylan Cruz does not quite have that same star upside, but Cruz has safety. And I would, I think I would lean towards the higher probability with with a high, high pick like that. Pirates, national, Pirates pick first, Nationals pick second, those teams up there. That's probably how I would come down, unless my scouts were arguing, or my analysts, that Skeens was way more valuable than any of the position players, or going to be. We don't, you don't get those kinds of players in baseball all that often. Maybe once every five years you get somebody who's a clear 1-1 and who doesn't seem to have as much risk. And just thinking about it, I mean, I remember, you know, we had A-Rod, we had Griffey, we had Harper, we had David Strasburg. Obviously, that worked. That didn't work out great. But when Strasburg was great, he was great. But it doesn't – I mean, I'm not a draft guy, but it doesn't feel like we've had those types of one-ones in a while. I would argue Cole was probably the last one. Um, and we had a run where it was – that's 10 – that's 12 years ago, right? Strasburg, who gave them 30 – you know, he was worth 30 war before it, as a pitcher and a little extra as a hitter before it finally – all ended. So I would argue he was successful. He never became what people said he was hoped he was going to become. But that's a, that one goes in the win column for me. Then Harper, a thirty win first round for a one one is a win, no question. Is a win, right? And I trust plenty of those guys have not. And then three years in a row, right? Because it was Strasburg, Harper, consensus one one before the spring started, held it, has more than justified it. Cole, I think, didn't go into that spring as one one. I think that was probably Anthony Rendon. Rendon got hurt. Um, played hurt basically his whole junior year at Rice. Cole had a very good platform year and went 1-1, and I think he's more than justified it. And there have been first overall picks who've been fine since then, but nobody who nobody who's become, a, I think, a clear superstar. Um, I guess Correa probably has been at times. He's just been hurt so much that I probably am underrating him a little bit. But even he, at the time he was selected, there was a lot of, oh, the Astros are going cheap here. There's nobody yep. who it's... On draft day, this guy's clearly won one and then went on to become a superstar. I don't think we've had that 
in a while. And now we have a year where I could argue, I have argued, there are up to five guys, if you count these two high school outfielders, who probably would look like that in a different draft year. If you put any of those five guys into last year's draft, we'd probably say, oh, well, that's that's 1-1. One, one. That's obviously the guy. And it's just because of COVID and just randomness, they're all coming out in the same year this year. I was going to say, is this a COVID delay type thing, or is it just one of those things, one of those years? I think both, right? I think we've got, you know, this is all the high school guys from 2020 who ended up going to college. Cruz took his name out of the draft. Kyle Teal at Virginia um, never got to play a game because he, he played high school baseball in New Jersey. So their whole season was canceled. So he just headed to school. All those guys who ended up at school are now all coming out at once. Um, and so we've got this really good college crop. And I'm kind of hopeful that as much as I love to see guys sign out of high school um, and get paid, I mean, you know, maybe this just kind of keeps it rolling forward. Now, three years from now, some of these high school guys, you know, they wanted a million, they wanted a million five. They don't get that because the college class is good enough. Some teams just say, we're going to go that direction. And then the 2026 draft ends up better and ends up having a better college class as a result. I'm not anti-college. I'm sort of anti how a lot of college coaches use their pitchers in particular. And I say, hey, if someone's offering you that kind of money out of high school, then take it. Um, clearly biased categories. And, but at the same time, like it's fun when there's a good college draft because everybody can follow those guys. You know about the LSU pitcher. You probably don't know as much about the high school players because you have, you have no place to watch them. No, and, and this has been a problem with the TV coverage of the draft too, where it's better now because you have these showcases and stuff where they can get B-roll. But I remember the early years that MLB tried to make the draft a thing and you had, I, I must've seen, and Moustakas comes to mind, because I think I took, saw Moustakas take the same swing in a cage 73 times <laughs> in the week leading up to the Which draft. Like, they, they, they there's had. much better B-roll now for all of these guys. And you've got game action for a lot of the college guys. So um, I, I mean, I give, them, I give them credit. They've tried to, I mean, I know you've talked about this a lot, but the timing of the draft is a disaster. Yep. Bumping it up, sticking it on All-Star Weekend and shoving all of these events that, if not entirely separated, should be more separated than they are, um, has been just a mess. And it, get, it went into the whole ending the short season leagues and all, you know, trying to get it away from the College World Series. But it's stapling it to the All-Star Weekend is just too much. Um, and I, I don't know if they're going to change it or not. But right now, and especially for guys like you who cover the draft and – the futures game and the prospects and you know certainly have your it's not like you're john or jim or jonathan or jim where you're only covering the minors and the prospects you cover the major league game as well a guy like me like i say i can name five guys who might be drafted and that if you set the line at four and a half i might you might even want to take the under um right. but i don't for guys like you this is a killer couple of weeks i i don't enjoy the fact that those two things are on top of each other, right? The Futures game is now Saturday night, so really nobody's going to watch the thing. And it's only seven innings because we got to get to the softball game. And then the draft is Sunday night. So, I mean, two years ago in Denver, they were the same day. That was even worse. But, yeah, that's like a bad 36 hours or so. The fact that the draft is as late as it is means I've got this sort of weird time where, like, last night I went to a minor league game because – there's not that much left to do on draft stuff. Obviously, there's texts and calls to do, but there's nobody to go see. There hasn't been for a couple of weeks now. I mean, the last draft guy I saw in person was over a month ago at this point because they're all done, unless I wanted to go up to the Cape. And there are some guys now, because the draft is so late, there are some players who go play summer ball in one of these wood bat leagues. Even some high school guys try to do that just to get seen one more time. Um, I could do that, but I just sort of had this weird, I wouldn't say I have free time. That's a myth, but... I have more time. And so I'm surprisingly unstressed about the draft. The draft is six days from now as we're talking. And I'm fine. I sent a bunch of texts this morning, but I'm not like losing my mind. Whereas when draft was so much earlier, the week leading up to the draft, I would like lose weight because I was just <laughs> stressed and not eating and, and dropping from sleeping. your usual 110 to like 105, probably. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, hey, you flatter me. I, I know you didn't bring me on here to talk to draft. Can I get one rant in before we move on? Go for it. The Futures game, the MLB has never done the Futures game right. And yep, now that they've pushed it back to Saturday, it's even worse. It's like, if you yep. just want to bury the thing, if you don't want to have the thing, don't have the thing. But having the thing on Saturday night, come on, what are you even doing? There is a day. It's in the middle of the week. It's called Wednesday. And next <laughs> Wednesday, there's nothing. There's, there's I, no I games. Guess be, I guess there's Wimbledon and some WNBA games and MLS, which doesn't exist anymore since it's only on a streaming service. 
put the Futures game on Wednesday night. What are you doing? What possible yep. reason is there to have this on Saturday when you can have it on Wednesday? What, because everybody wants to go home? Fine. The people that want to stay for the Futures game can stay for the Futures game. But I guarantee you, nobody who's going to the Derby and the All-Star game is – Getting in on Saturday in a way that they wouldn't stay for Sunday, if you know what I mean. Like it's going to be a three to four day trip, no matter what you do. Mm -hmm. The thing on Wednesday, I'm just the, the, the handling of the futures game has been an issue since they invented the futures game, and you know they, they put it on a Sunday afternoon. What are baseball fans doing on Sunday afternoon in, in July? They're outside or they're watching their own team. Put the thing on Wednesday. I, I, it drives me crazy that we're still having this conversation. It's well, it's one of the very basic like. This isn't a hard problem to solve. Well, it's they. The worst part to me of this is that MLB understands this for the draft. They moved the draft to a time when there's basically no games. Right. There might be the ends right. of a couple of games still going on, but that's it. So you got that. Then why are you putting the futures game up against a bunch of other games? Like what? Why didn't you? How did you not see – that's actually a much better argument is here's another game that we're going to put on at a time when there are no games. So when people are like, I want to watch a baseball game, oh, there's one baseball game on and it's got a bunch of – you know, maybe not famous, but some prospects are famous right. now in their own way and guys who are going to be stars. And it's so – it is so easy for MLB to market this thing because you can just point to all the guys who were in the game and who have done amazing things in those games. So how the heck – I, mean, I don't understand. I'm with you because it, they treat it like they don't like it, but they don't cancel right. it. And I don't want them to cancel it at all, but they shove it on Saturday night. It is now only seven innings. The selection process, the people who work on selecting these rosters, like that is uh, the most thankless job in baseball because of all the restrictions. Teams say, I won't send this prospect, but I want to send this other guy who's not really a prospect, but we want him in the game because really we want to boost his trade value. Oh, this guy can go, but he can only play these particular positions. we got to have somebody from every team. We want to try to get more countries represented. It's like the traveling salesman problem. There is no solution. You could run this code to the end of the universe, and you're still not going to find the perfect solution. And they, these guys do it every year, and I think in general, they get most of the best prospects into the game. And then MLB is like, oh, are you still doing that? And they just <laughs> – it is so frustrating. Like, I'm going. I'm flying to Seattle on Saturday to go see the Futures game, and I am excited for the actual Futures game. I will be there a little bit. During the whole game, thinking, I wish this was nine innings. Especially if we're going to have the pitch clock and we're going to keep things moving. Because the only problem I ever, ever had with Futures games was that they would often run too long. Because there would always be that one kid who would come in, sometimes more than one, and couldn't throw a strike. Right. It happens, right? Guys just get nervous, big league stadium. Or just somebody just doesn't have it that day. That's fine. There are even ways to get around that by just having a couple of extra pitchers there. A couple of guys who are just on the roster, like, you're here for mop-up. Oh, the home team, you're hosting the All-Star game? Great. You got to tab two extra pitchers from your system who will go to the Futures game, are there just for mop-up duty, but may not actually appear in the game. Like, you just do that, and everything's covered, and we can go back to nine innings, and then everyone gets more than one at-bat or three pitches in the game. Right. The highlight of, of seeing these guys that you've maybe only seen on a list or in your column or one of the prospect guys' columns, um, and then mm -hmm. actually getting to see them when, I mean, yeah, you can go to MLB, again, go to MLB.com. But again, what are baseball fans doing at night? They're watching their own team. This is the yep. chance to watch not just your team's product projects, uh, pro prospects, but a bunch of other really good prospects. And this is where I think you've got to get the best ones in the game. I talked about this in the All-Star the All Star game a couple of times. Like, yeah. I'd have yep. put Ellie De La Cruz in the All-Star game. Because yeah, it's a marketing event. Too. It's mm -hmm. a marketing event. Who's, who's, I mean, it's different selection process and the players are involved. But like Whit Merrifield or Ellie De La Cruz? Who's going to be the guy you might talk about the next day? Well, who's going to get people to tune in? People have heard something exactly about exactly. Ellie De La Cruz. You know, it's also I somebody mean, might I be know... in the game in the eighth inning, as opposed to all the stars who have left the game by the eighth inning. Right, they're home at that point. They've gone yeah. to their private jets, right, and left. Yeah, it's it is. Yeah, and I agree with you on the futures game. This is, I think, that MLB. This, we can make this the last point in the Futures game, but I, I'm glad you brought it up. But just the one thing that MLB has done well is the very elite prospects almost always end up in the Futures right. game. They're pretty good about that. It's the next tier of guys where – and it's not MLB. It's the teams, especially the pitchers. It's the teams not wanting those guys to pitch or not just not wanting to send certain guys because they're trying to showcase someone else. 
I mean, I don't know how MLB actually enforces this, but there should definitely be a, you've got to have a really good reason to not send your number two prospect, right? The dog ate your homework is not a good enough excuse. We need something better to not send a particular guy. He's actually hurt. Something along those lines. Or, you know, he's or he's coming back from injury or something off field, you know, he's on the bereavement list, whatever. Like, there's got to be a really good reason. That is always frustrating to me to show up and I get there. And there's a guy who's, these guys don't suck. Nobody sucks in that game, usually. But where it's like, I know there are five better prospects from that organization and this is who they allowed. Sometimes teams will send a list and say, you can only take these, you know, of these three guys. We used to have to do this in Toronto. You'd have to send your approved list of prospects for MLB to choose from. Well, you can game that. Here's a list of two guys. Pick two. Thanks. Mm. Big help. Really help. It's like, like a one-day version of the AFL problem where teams often don't, particularly the yes. pitching prospects. So you end up with this imbalance in the AFL where everybody's tired and the pitchers are tired. And now it's Arizona where the ball flies. And it becomes harder to evaluate hitters in that context. Uh, the thing about the pitchers really bugs me because – and you're the guy to ask about this. My mm-hmm. feeling is we've gone too far in reducing workloads, particularly when it comes to development. If you look at some of the innings counts or even some of the daily pitch counts uh, of the guys mm-hmm. coming through the minor system, you've got guys who are 22 years old throwing 80 pitches to start. I don't know how you develop major league pitchers. Kyle Harrison is the guy I noticed on this a couple weeks ago. Alexander Harrison had not thrown more than 80 pitches in a game. You know, up, maybe it was two weeks ago I looked at it. Okay. I'm thinking, how do you develop a guy to throw six, seven innings in the majors? When he's never getting to do that in the minors. And, you know, I, I want to say Tink Hens is another guy who's barely pitched. I mean, when do we, oh, yeah. and, and this, this fight isn't this, I bring it up because you mentioned teams not wanting to use their pitchers. If you can't release your pitcher to throw an inning mm-hmm. in, a, in, in a highlight exhibition game, I think that speaks more to the fact that we've broken pitching development than to teams making the right decisions with their pitchers. It's crazy because Harrison, I looked, I was like, I'm pretty sure I saw Harrison throw 100 pitches in a game last year. And I did, actually. 102, um, which he did twice last year through 98, 96. This year, you are absolutely correct. I don't think he's thrown 90 pitches in a game. Has he even thrown 83 in his last outing? Uh, right. And it was like 81 three weeks ago, maybe. So yes, it was 81. And this was not a good outing. Now, granted, like, it's the PCL, right? It's a, this is a lousy place to pitch. Yeah. We all kind of understand that. Like, I don't think he's gotten – one time he's gotten 15 outs in a game all season. This how was does my, that guy learn how to pitch in the major leagues? Well, and I will add on to that because I think everything you said is true. This has been – or was, I guess – my criticism of how the Orioles handed Grayson, handled Grayson Rodriguez. They did do some things very well. This guy came into baseball with not really any sort of change-up. And I would argue that is now his best or second-best pitch, certainly his best off-speed pitch. Um, but they handled him so gingerly, despite, as far as I know, no indication of any arm problem ever. Right. I don't think he's ever had an arm issue. He had an oblique issue last year, which mm-hmm. you know I heard – sort of back channel, even the player was kind of like, I could pitch sooner than this. They're being very conservative. Um, And to me, it is not just about building up workloads within games, which I agree is absolutely a point, but also like face a guy three times. Yeah. Because that's going to force you to use all your pitches. That's going to force you, if you're Grayson Rodriguez in a ball where I saw him at Wilmington, um, might've been the start of 21 when the minor leagues got going and I mean, he was up to 99 and he didn't have to throw anything else. He, he was going to have one of those Bartolo Colon peak where I'm just going to throw fastballs by you all day. Wilmington lineup wasn't very good and he just carved with his fastball. I'm like, that's impressive. And I don't think I learned much about him. And he certainly didn't learn anything from pitching. How is he developing by doing that? They sent him up to double A not long afterwards, obviously. So they saw what I saw. But if you let that guy go deeper into a lineup, turn it over a third time, he's at least forced to use different pitches or a different approach. Not that likely to get the same hitter out three times pumping velocity by him. Some guys, but not all guys. And to me, that is the number one argument I had against Rodriguez. It was less, um, it was something that like, I don't know how much this guy can pitch because they've never let him, but also I don't know how he's getting better. Nobody ever got better as a pitcher by not pitching. I understand that there's the belief it's going to keep him healthy, but you got to pitch. And this is, you learn how to pitch tired as well. Like, what do you? What does yes. it feel like when you're at the 85th pitch, at the 95th pitch, and as you say, going the third time around? Now, 
we know about the third time penalty in the major leagues. And that yes. comes up certainly in the playoffs a lot, but even like, but you know, the whole primacy of the starting pitcher argument that's been invented over the last two years, as if mm-hmm. people were going to baseball games to watch Dan Petrie and Dennis Leonard go the distance, you know, 40 years yes. ago. Yep. You're still going to have, you, you, there's like two tiers of starter. There's the 18 batter starter. And let's be real. There's a lot of guys who should be 18 batter starters. But you also For need sure. to develop the guys who are 27 batter starters. And what MLB, to my, to my, and you're closer to this than I, but to my vision, MLB teams have just started only developing these guys to go 18 batters or 20 batter, maybe 21. Whereas if you have a Grayson Rodriguez, you've got to learn, as you say, he's got to learn how to pitch to guys a third time through. He's got to learn how to pitch at pitch 95, at pitch 105, what that physically feels like. We've reduced workloads in the major leagues and parallel to that, we've reduced workloads in the minor leagues in a way that the reduced major league workloads become a fait accompli. Guys are just never learning how to do what we need mm-hmm. number one and number two starters to do. Like I say, I got no problem. You got teams using openers, team using tandem starters in the fourth and fifth slots. That's to me right. creative use of a staff. But every team also needs to have two to three guys that they can put out and know they're going to get six to seven innings. And we've just stopped. When, like I say, when you're developing Grayson Rodriguez this way, when you're developing Kyle Harrison this way, where are you going to get the next crop of number two starters from if they're never learning to pitch like number two starters? I mean, this is I'll just sort of good. We can uh, wrap on this topic by tying it back to Paul Skeens. You know, most people think if Skeens doesn't go one to the Pirates, he goes two to the Nationals, um, that Mike Rizzo isn't going to be able to resist a big-bodied college starter mm-hmm. with tremendous results who throws, literally throws 100, sits 100 deep into his outings. If he goes to the Nationals, they're going to let him pitch. He's going to work deeper into games. I understand, like, they did the whole shutdown thing with Strasburg at one point because he was coming, right? I think he was coming back from surgery at that point. But... Their guys, they they let them pitch in the minors, and I think he will. I would be very surprised if they held Skeens back on workload, and that would be one argument just as a fan to say, I wouldn't mind seeing Skeens go to the Nationals. I think he'll be in the big leagues fast because that's generally been Mike Rizzo's MO with these with good college college players, period, and they'll probably let him pitch deeper into games. And God, the guy was throwing 120 pitches basically every game down the stretch for LSU, never too much more than that, but... I think we have all the reason to think this guy can handle 100 pitches on a regular basis, which probably will get him through, you know, 20-odd batters most of the time, certainly when he starts his minor league career. So that that is a hope I would have. I hope if the Pirates take him, they do the same thing. But I look at the Nationals, they say, yeah, they'll probably just, they'll say, just let her rip and let does him go. Co- You'll see some six, seven-inning outings. Does the Cade Cavalli experience warn them off that at all? That's a great question. Um I never had any issue that I can recall with how they handled Cavalli. So I don't know. Like, I don't remember him ever being overpitched, ever feeling like he was overpitched. No, that was just a shame because I had other questions about, like, his command never really matched the quality of the stuff. But stuff was pretty good. Delivery always worked for me. That was just, damn it, just a guy who broke, unfortunately. I hope he comes back and he's 100%, obviously. But... I don't know. Every team looks at it differently. There are definitely teams that limit these pitch counts, workloads um, in the minors because of ex- what I would call excessive risk aversion. Nobody, Never let any pitcher break ever. I don't want ever to see a pitcher break. The way we live now, pitchers break. Right. And any system where we are especially encouraging pitchers to throw as hard as they can, as much as they can, is going to see pitchers break. You know, a world where... Pitchers are, you know, pitching more at 90%. You know, maybe that's, maybe we see injuries, you know, particularly Tommy John's drop. Like we've seen shoulder injuries mostly disappear because of workload management. It's all Tommy John. It's almost all Tommy John. Um, And that's not to dismiss Tommy John. It's not serious, but there is actually a fix for a torn UCL that there really doesn't exist for shoulders by and large. So you know, if we want to reduce Tommy John's, there might be things we can do about that. But never letting anybody pitch too much just, I think, robs us of pitching. Doesn't maybe develop, maybe doesn't develop those guys the best way and still doesn't seem to eliminate Tommy John's because even guys who've been handled extremely carefully do often end up breaking because it's not just about workloads. Right. This is where we're like, we're, we're doing it. We're, we're raising pitchers this way and not reducing injury rates. So what are we doing? Let them pitch. 
I mean, I advocated for Andrew Painter to make the Phillies. I think I did that 15 seconds before he had the elbow injury this uh, yeah. this spring. But like at some point, you just you know they're probably it's fatalistic. I know, but we have so little ability at this point to keep guys from getting hurt. I think you just got to pitch them and let the chips fall in their way because baseball isn't about keeping pitchers healthy so they can get rich someday. Baseball is about winning. Um, Yuri Perez is somebody I think that I don't think the Marlins should do the Strasburg shutdown with him. I think you let him pitch and. You know, let the let the hitter as the Braves did the other day. But the Braves don't count. The Braves yeah. are basically the gas house gorillas. Um, <laughs> but let him pitch until something happens. I remember, yeah, you know, it cost Jared Wright his career. You think about yep. the way he pitched in um, with the Indian then then Indians in um, yeah uh, nineteen ninety seven. Seven, yeah, yeah. Seven and, and not just not just the regular yep. season workload, but pitching through the playoffs. And I think at some yep. point you kind of got to say, you know what, we're here to win a championship, and mm-hmm. we're not abusing them. I'm not recommending Kerry Wood, Mark Pryor type workloads. I think about Ruben nope. Cavedo throwing 130 pitches in an outing at age 21. We don't do that. Anymore. We don't, we, we've gone the other way. So look, these guys are going to max out the effort on the individual, individual pitches. You got to get 1400 innings from somewhere. So let's get them from our best guys instead of holding them to 75 pitches and using, you know, guys who probably shouldn't be in the major leagues for the other 25 end of rant. Yep. I completely agree. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So I, I want to talk a little bit about your most recent newsletter, um, more philosophically than the specifics, because you talked about the oldest Chapman trade, um, which I broke down and you broke down. It's, that, that, that aside, you referred to it as a shift in the market. And I'm curious what you see here in this particular trade and what you think it tells us, especially because it was early, right? It was a month before the trade deadline. What do you think that might tell us? What do you think we'll see differently uh, as we go up to the trade deadlines, we probably my guess is we probably won't see much in the way of trades until you know maybe two weeks from now it'll start to pick up again. But um, it's nice that we had this one deal early to start to potentially break down and say, oh, maybe we're seeing something a little bit different in the way teams are approaching some of these. I think in particular you're talking about the the rentals. Well, yeah, Chapman of course has now been traded midseason twice in his life. It was 2016. The Yankees had traded for him from the Reds and then traded him to the Cubs and got Glaber Torres, who was a top. I think he was top 50 coming into the year, and he was top 15 going into the next year. So really yes. one of the best prospects in baseball. You have Billy McKinney, who at the time was, and now, of course, is a Yankee star, at the time was considered <laughs> to be a good prospect who bounced through the A's organization and the Cubs and then the uh, the, the, the Yankees, and two other prospects mm-hmm. for 30 innings of Aroldis Chapman. And now Aroldis Chapman, who is back to being, I would say, 95% of the pitcher he was in 2016 after going through some decline. He's added the splitter, which he doesn't throw a lot, but is basically unhittable. Um, you mm-hmm. look at the numbers, he's got the same, he's got actually a better fit, uh, about the same strikeout rate. He looks like the same guy he was, you know, in 2017, let's say. And now what the Rangers got for him was, excuse me, what the Royals got for him was, you know, Cole Reagans, who's a injured 25 year old former number one. Yeah, maybe he's a five, maybe he's a four. He's cheap and mm-hmm. he can, he can do what Jordan Lyles does for, you know, one, I can do math for a fraction of the price, one twentieth of the cost. <laughs> and they got Ronnie Cabrera, who's 17 years old and could be just about anything, who is really the, exactly the kind of guy the Royals should be chasing. But he's yes, not on anybody's agreed. He's not on anybody's list because he hasn't played in nope. the states yet. He's 17. He's played in the DSL. So I look mm-hmm. at those two prices and I'm like, wow, you know, more or less the same pitcher. And actually, mm-hmm. Chapman was actually more dinged up by back then because he was coming off the suspension. The incident with his girlfriend with the gun was still a little more in people's minds. It's one of the reasons the Yankees got him at, at a fairly uh, low price that winter. Whereas yep. now it's kind of it doesn't really get not really as much part of the uh, of the story. So, like to me, Chapman's basically the same guy with massively different. Uh, the price has changed, and when you look at the market, that Torres trade really to me is a break point because you go back from that trade and you see a lot more 
in 15 and 14 and 13 of these trades of guys who are rentals bringing back really big uh, returns, even if it's like one high-end prospect, rated prospects. And since then, and you might you can fold the Quintana trade into this. In 2017, the Cubs traded uh, Dylan Cease and Eloy Jimenez for Jose Quintana. Now, Quintana was controlled through 2020, but that was yeah. the last, to me, really big prospect. That was a big prospect package. But if you look at the prices yeah. for rentals in 18, 19, we'll skip 20, 21, 22, the prices for rentals have fallen through the floor now. Teams aren't overpaying. They reckon, Not to say they didn't recognize in 16, but it's, it's the law of the land now. You don't trade a highly regarded prospect for 30 innings for 200 plate appearances of anybody. And I think the Chapman trade, the two Chapman trades, were kind of the framework through which I look through that. Now, I'm working on a piece that I want to come out with maybe in two weeks, maybe just after the break, about pro scouting. Because you look Mm -hmm. at – it's not that players aren't – it's not like good players aren't getting traded. But it's less now about, well, I'm going to look at what Keith's Keith's rankings, I'm going to look at – uh, BA's right, uh, JJ Cooper's rankings. I'm going to look at Jim and John, Jonathan's rankings and figure out who the, God, the prospects are. To me, the focus is now shift internally to pro scouting, where teams are getting better at identifying the players that they can make better or that they see differently from the, what the, the general lists see. So I think about Joe Ryan for Nelson Cruz, Yenier mm-hmm. Cano for uh, Jorge Lopez last year, where you're seeing these unrated prospects get traded at the deadline and then turn into something more than we thought they would be at the moment of their of their trade. And so instead of being based, it's harder to evaluate prospect for, for player trades now at the deadline if you're an outsider, if you're not a prospect guy, if you're not even the team itself. Because I think there's a greater difference in how the teams see these players. And it comes down to the quality of their pro scouting, which is why it's a little surprising that the Rays are a counterexample to this and trading away Joe Ryan. Joe, but trading away teams, Joe Ryan, I was going to say, that was, that was uh, go ahead and finish your your story, but I have a point was, on that. And, and it goes to, you know, so a lot of the stuff that, you know, the great books that have been written about the way teams are better about improving their own players. Now think about the Yankees with gas camp and what the Dodgers have done with a lot of their hitting development. I, I just, I, I feel like the outside perspective on the trade deadline is harder than ever because of what the teams know inside that we don't. Yeah. The Ryan one is interesting. because the Rays have a huge pro scouting staff and you mm-hmm. think of like, I would think of Joe Ryan as, the guy the Rays acquire, right? There's something wrong. I'm doing air quotes here. Uh, wrong with Ryan, right? It is not a particular, I mean, it's just not a good, doesn't look like a good fastball. I had to catch myself because the fastball obviously plays, but certainly traditionally you'd be like, you'd, you'd denigrate him and say, stuff seems kind of ordinary, but people actually, it's not ordinary and it doesn't play ordinary. And the twins are also a, a pretty strong analytical team. So mm-hmm. I'm sure they saw it too. It was, it's just really surprising to me when the Rays traded him. It's like, Oh, maybe this guy isn't as good. And I didn't even have him on my top 100. I think he was on my just missed list one year. And I, and I basically said, I just don't know how much to trust a guy with this kind of fastball being more than like a back end starter. <clears throat> and when the Rays traded him, my first reaction was, Oh, maybe I've overrated him. Obviously I'd underrated him. We know that now. Um, and it is interesting that the that the Rays would be on the wrong end of a deal like that because we're so used to talking about them being kind of on the right end of deals like that because they have they've maintained a really large and pro scouting department that they really utilize also plus they have an R and D department strong R and D department and the two of them work hand in hand particularly well I think they are a model for a lot of other clubs many many clubs have cut pro scouting I think to their detriment which is why the Rays can often pull off some of these deals also um, because they're seeing more players. They have more information on, on players than a lot of other clubs do, but that for the Rays to end up on the wrong end of a deal like that, I I guess it just happens sometimes, but it is, I I agree with you. It is kind of surprising to see them. Yes, very much so. And yeah, they've done a really nice job. Mm-hmm. Say Bailey Oberg, Sonny Gray, they got the best work out of Sonny Gray. Pablo Lopez has been up and down for them, but I think he looks a better pitcher than he was with the Marlins. He's very good with the Marlins. I just, I, I, I'm, I'm just like I said, to bring it back to pro scouting, you mentioned, you know, the Ray, I think these teams now, the, the disconnect between the publicly available lists, which is wow, you know, when I think about who's going to get traded at the deadline, that's the first place I'm going to look. I'm not going to mm-hmm. think about the sixth best prospect in an organization that this team thinks it can get and do really good things with. So, I think the trade deadline has become a little more opaque and good, bad, and different. Um, 
one of the things I think we're going to see now, we're just not going to see if you're going to if you're going to see a top prospect traded, it's going to be getting Scherzer at Turner. It's going to be getting Juan Soto. You're just not going to see Larry Anderson for Jeff Bagwell ever again, or even <laughs> um, uh, Glaber Torres for Aldis Chapman ever. Again. I will. Uh, I'll just throw this out there, Tommy. If you disagree, the one scenario I could see that happening again is the GM trying to save his job. Moral I was going to say a different word than job. Yep. Like, I'm going to swing really, really hard here and overpay to get impact right now because if it works, I go deep into the playoffs and I keep my job. And if it doesn't work, it's someone else's problem. Like, I feel like we'll see some deals like that happen where, where it's a WTF moment. How did they get that prospect for that? return but otherwise i agree with you i i also think there's just too much you know me and eric at fangraphs and the pipeline and ba and too many people read our stuff and know who these prospects are that if you trade a prospect who's good or who fans think is good you're gonna get a lot of pushback for that whereas 15 20 30 years ago i think that was a lot less true and mlb themselves like the mlb.com they push prospects all the time, as they should. They're marketing their product. Right. What they've sort of inadvertently done, though, is made these guys a little more famous. And now fans are will get up in arms if you trade. Maybe Andrew Painter's not the great example because he's still on the injured list. But if the Phillies had traded Andrew Painter this winter, um, which wouldn't have shocked me. I mean, Dave Dabrowski certainly, he, he plays for now. And they were coming off an NL pennant. Would have made perfect sense for them to trade some more prospects, and and you know they did in a minor trade with Gregory Soto, but it would have made perfect sense if they could have gotten a superstar somewhere to do a deal like that. Fans would have been legit mad to see a, a prospect like that go. Fans are much more prospect hugging than when I first started doing this, because as you say, they know the prospect. There's more prospect coverage than ever before. It's interesting because I hear from fans of teams that have a shot at the playoffs, and I'm not talking about the Royals here. I mean, the Red Sox are three and a half games out of a wild card. Um, they're over 500. And most of the Red Sox fans that email me or participate in the newsletter Slack are like, oh, no, we got to trade James Paxton. We got Fans are more willing than ever to punt on a season where they could make the playoffs in favor of either not giving up their own prospects or it's a very strange dynamic to me. I, I find that the fans of the fans of the marginal contenders – are much more inclined to have their teams sell. And it's a, it's a weird dynamic to have your a team's fans, the fans of a contender in position, say, no, we'll punt this season in the hopes of future seasons. First of all, future seasons aren't guaranteed. The San Diego Padres right. are under 500. The New York Mets are under 500. You need to strike while the iron is hot. I mean, I talk about this in the week. The week centrals are going to come up with this all the time. Like, yep. I still think the Cardinals are the best team in the central. They got to make up <laughs> you know, it's eight, eight games in, in, in four months, but yeah, they can still do that to me. Now, the, the longer it takes for them to get it going, the harder an argument that is to make. But I think about the White Sox. There are people talking about the, the Guardians are going to trade Shane Bieber. The Guardians are tied for first place. I know. What they are might you still talking do about? Because they're the Guardians and they have, 60, they have 63 pitchers and Bieber's falling apart anyway. Bieber's yes. a guy they could have traded 10 years ago, I think. Like in this same context, I don't know if enough teams would have seen the things that are obvious about Bieber now and said, oh, no, we don't want that guy. I think now it's harder to get value for Shane Bieber because everybody's kind of working off the same playbook. Yep, I agree. Um, last thing I want to ask you, and I, you just kind of led right into it, actually. You mentioned the Cardinals, and you can talk about the Cardinals if you want, but any teams you look at right now and say, I think they're going to be a lot better, or I guess you could say a lot worse in the second half than what they were in the first half. I, and I will just say, if you want to talk about the Cardinals, sure, I agree with you. I cannot believe this team is last place, 13 games under 500. That did, it just doesn't really compute. The last two years, they've traded for like 300 or maybe 250 combined innings of good pitching at the, uh, the trade deadline. It was happened mm -hmm. Lester two years ago. It was Montgomery and Quintana. I don't know how many times they can pull that rabbit out of the hat. They don't have Molina anymore. Obviously, integrating new pitchers will be a little more difficult. But, um, no, I actually don't have the Cardinals on the list. I got asked a couple of days ago on Twitter, before I left Twitter, who I thought would be the two best teams in baseball in the second half. I said the Blue Jays and mm -hmm. the Dodgers. The Blue Jays mm -hmm. are a mystery. And I think a lot of that all – I think one of the things I want to – if you look at the single-year park factors, mm -hmm. Roger Center is now the best pitcher's park in baseball. 
because of the changes they made. And I'll be honest, I looked at the changes they made. They brought the fences in. They did some other stuff. I thought it was actually going to be a better hitter's park. So I got, mm -hmm. I just missed a little bit by that one. But I think some <laughs> of what we're seeing with the, with the Blue Jays is because they're, the shape of the things they do now has changed because of the ballpark. Their hitting isn't as bad as it actually looks. And their outfield defense is just so good. They, they, the trades that they made, the trade they made for Varsho and the signing of Kiermaier have mm -hmm. massively upgraded the outfield defense, made the pitching better. I think they'll figure out the offense. So I think the Blue Jays are going to make a push. I think they will eventually get one of the wild card spots in the AL. And the Dodgers, to me, the Dodgers, having won a zillion games in 19 and 21 and 22, have basically mm -hmm. said, we don't need to do this anymore. Nobody cares. If we play 667 ball and then lose three out of four, nobody cares about the 667 ball. To me, I look at everything the Dodgers have done over the last eight months as a team that says, you know what, let's get to 91 wins. Let's mm -hmm. use the first half. Let's let's keep let's get everybody healthy. Let's be really conservative with pitcher health. And then on September 15th, get the team in place that we want to have March for the playoffs. I, I don't think the Dodgers care about the regular season anymore because they know they're going to make the playoffs. And I think we're going to see some of that in the Dodgers over the, the next three months. They're going to get the team they want in place. They'll probably make some deals at the deadline. And because <clears throat> the Bauer contract kept them from getting under – the Bauer ruling, I should say, kept them from getting under the luxury tax. They wanted to do that. They were lining everything up for Otani next year so they wouldn't have to pay the repeater penalties. Knowing they can't get under the tax threshold anyway, I think frees them up to do some stuff at the deadline with money. <clears throat> and they have prospects to deal with got two of the, you'd know better than I, two of the five best catching prospects in baseball in uh, Kataya and rushing. I, mean, yes. I guess Davis is better, maybe Andy Rodriguez. You would know better than me. They're but, right. I mean, Those guys are both guys very, very valuable. Yep. They've got 63 I mean, some of these guys that we've seen this year, Grove and Miller and Sheehan. And, by the way, it's very weird. You went through this with Derek Law. Look, I know Smith's My large and Lopez's and Lopez and Jackson's guys like this have been going through this their whole lives. It is very weird to have on every podcast I listen to my name popping out at me 10 times. It's very strange. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, the Dodgers can actually move some of these guys as they decide, you know, they, they, it's kind of been this running tryouts in the majors for these pitchers. Mm -hmm. And I think eventually they'll say, okay, we can use these guys for trade and we can keep these guys. So I think that they're going to be active and successful because, well, it's the Dodgers at the trade deadline. My guest today has been the great Joe Sheehan. You can find his work, the Joe Sheehan Newsletter, uh, by going to joesheehan.com, spelled Sheehan like Emmett Sheehan, as it turns out. I'll just say that <laughs> from now on. That works perfectly. Joe, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Keith. Take care. That's all for this week's show. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope to see some of you in Seattle.